electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Last Call, the toast of Tinseltown. SAG after President Fran Drescher joins us on the union's historic deal with the studios. High stakes in the Golden State. President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping meet this week. Is it the last chance to dial down some tension? Premium returns. Elon Musk's ex may have found a financial lifeline. Show me the Monet. A group of masterpieces hit in the auction block, but there may be a wider warning for the economy at large. Plus, our exclusive list of insider stock buys with a lot of intriguing activity this week. And can your illustrious host beat the books? I've got my three NFL picks for the weekend as I try to climb my way back to relevancy. All that, much more across the hour. So as always, belly upper buckle up because last call is up right now. All right. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Selva. Thanks for joining us live here on Last Call. Hope you had a good Friday because it could be a wild Monday on Wall Street. Because first up tonight, a major developing story. Moody's has cut its credit outlook on U.S. debt to negative. The rating agency worried about soaring deficits and debt affordability. And now there are only really two questions. Number one, will this matter to the markets come Monday morning? And two, will S&P, sort of the big dog, follow suit? Joining us now by phone, CBC senior economics reporter Steve Lees. But Steve, obviously, sorry to bust in on your Friday night, my man, but this seems like a pretty big story. Yeah, what else would I be doing but reporting on the downgrade? Uh, what they did, Brian, just to recap again what you were saying, is they downgraded U.S. Uh, the outlook for U.S. debt from stable to negative. They did affirm the AAA rating. They cited those things that you cited, um, uh, the burgeoning deficit. Uh, they, they cite eroding uh, strength. And they also cite the political polarization in the U.S. So I'll read the statement from Moody's, which says the key driver of the outlook change to negative is Moody's assessment that the downside risks to the U.S. fiscal strength have increased and may longer may no longer be fully offset by the sovereign's unique credit strength. Continued political polarization within U.S. within the U.S. Congress raises the risk that successive governments will not be able to reach consensus on a fiscal plan to slow the decline in debt affordability. They're just not sure the U.S. is going to have the political will to not default. We reached out to the Treasury. We have a statement, Brian, from uh, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyamo. He says, while the statement by Moody's maintains the United States AAA rating, we disagree with the shift to a negative outlook. The American economy remains strong, and the Treasury securities are the world's preeminent safe and liquid assets. And it may be preempting another question of yours, Brian. As you know, this has happened before. I think you were around in 2011 when S&P did downgrade the U.S. debt to AA+. It happened again in this summer, in August. That was a big issue for the market. Uh, Fitch went down to AA+. And now Moody's keeping the AAA rating, Brian, but downgrading the outlook 
from stable to negative. Brian? Yes, and, and you certainly know what that means. I know what that means. A lot of our audience may know what that means. But for those that are kind of new to this, Steve, what is the difference between a true downgrade and an outlook downgrade? Well, an outlook downgrade doesn't change anybody's ability to hold the debt. There are some funds that can only hold AAA or AA-plus. Even a AA-plus downgrade would not be that bad. I think, Brian, that this is perhaps a helpful wake-up call to Congress, a helpful wake-up call to the country, that we are headed in a very bad and dangerous direction when it comes to our debt. Uh, and, and, and the real thing that has made this what it is right now is the increase in interest rates because what that has done is it has really accelerated the amount of interest expense and it becomes a situation where estimates that I have uh, uh, gotten this week from from, uh, uh, some people that the um, interest expense will be greater than military spending in just a couple, three years. Um, I talked to Ken Smetter from the Wharton Budget Model. They're a very serious group of people that estimate what's going on and, and, and what's going to happen to the budget. He says his model blew up when he tried to figure out what was going to happen to U.S. debt after 20 years. And he says the time is now to address it. It's amazing. And listen, the the interest expense is not all a net negative, I believe, because there's a lot of retirees and investors that get a lot of that interest. So it's not all just gone. But to your point, it does come out of spending on other things. Um, this is a warning. To your point, this is not a downgrade yet. If we get S&P, though, which is considered kind of the bigger dog of these three, Fitch, Moody's, and Standard & Poor's, if they follow suit, any indication of kind of what we're then looking at market-wise, Steve? Well, I think the way to think about this now is we're still, what's the right word, the lousiest, uh, the best-looking jalopy on the street right now. I think that's the way to think about it. Um, U.S. will still, the bond market will still be the preeminent liquid market, as the Deputy Treasury Secretary said. Um, we'll still sell our debt, but the issue is what price will we sell it at? And what's probably going to happen is increasingly, as the situation deteriorates, the market and investors will demand a premium. Now, there is, has not been typically a premium for default in our debt because we are the risk-free debt in the country. But over time, and with these downgrades, over time, it's a couple basis points here, a couple basis points there, and suddenly it starts to add up. We're already paying, um, not historic, but like 20-year highs on our debt at 4.5% or 460 on the 10-year. And then the, the uh, 30-year auction, as you know, Brian, did not go well this mm. week. And so there's you, a question as to what price you, investors are going to demand to hold the debt. Do you think that that 30-year auction may have been the – I know you're speculating, Steve. I get it. I'm sorry. Do you think that 30-year auction may have been the trigger for Moody's? Um, I don't. I think what's happening right now in Congress is probably the trigger. I mean, uh, Congress left uh, left Washington without uh, funding the government, and we are headed, I think, inexorably for a shutdown next week. Um, I think that's a big issue. I think the politics are a big issue. But even once you remove the politics, and it's hard to do that because <clears throat> what's wrong with the politics is what's wrong with the finances in the sense that um, the um, – uh, amount of debt that we're going to have to keep refunding. The 30-year, I think, was a bit of a canary in the coal mine. And I'll give you a little bit of history on this, uh, uh, Brian, which mm -hmm. is that uh, the, the um, Treasury came out with a refunding announcement that really calmed the market. And that was telling us how they're going to fund the debt and when they're going to fund the debt. And everything looked okay. Then they did the 10-year on Tuesday. It looked pretty good. The 30-year on the next day, 
was the one that upset the market. So you can have a yeah. plan, but you know what happens when you have a plan, Brian. Steve Lee's been joining us by phone on a big story there. Steve, we appreciate it. We'll let you go now. Thank you. Thanks, man. All right. So, by the way, futures right now are closed. You might have some slight movements in the ETFs that track the broader indices. So those are trading after hours. Got gold trading as well. Gold's a little bit higher. The QQQ is a little bit lower. Futures not trading yet. They will resume trading at, I believe, at 6 o'clock on Sunday night. So those are the ETFs. You can see down a touch. Not a big market reaction right now. But let's kind of figure out and talk more about this. Joining us is Clio, Capital Managing Director Sarah Kunst and Chief Strategist at 248 Ventures and CBC contributor Lindsay Bell. And Sarah and Lindsay, we were going to bring you on to kind of do like almost like stock picks and have a little Friday fun. This headline changes all that. Sarah, first to you, do you think this will matter to the markets? You know, I think that some of this is priced in. You know, when when Mike Johnson came in, I don't think that that was a huge signal to the markets that we would be out of the woods uh, with with potential government shutdown. And so I don't know if this is going to be shocking. Um, to some extent, it might be surprising it, it didn't happen, you know, with the last shutdown. But it's certainly not good. There's very little that's good right now in this market. Yeah. Would you agree with that, Lindsay? I mean, this 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 is a pretty it's not a downgrade, but it's a it's it's like the professor going to the student. You got to be. You still got to be. But if this level of work continues, you're not going to have a B much longer. Yeah, I think that's really the important thing. This is about the outlook. Like Steve said, if this was an actual downgrade in the rating, we would have a much bigger reaction in markets on Monday. Um, I think that investors are probably going to assess the situation over the weekend. We'll see what uh, the Speaker of the House puts out tomorrow in terms of a government funding plan. Um, I think the other guests got it right. Uh, maybe what really triggered this announcement going into tomorrow is, 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 the, is the political polarization, as they called it, going into the weekend. Um, there's been a lot of craziness going on in Congress. And the question is, is are we going to have a real budget by next Friday or is it going to be another continuing resolution, a laddered resolution? The ratings agencies, they are really getting becoming impatient with this process, if you will. Yeah. And, and Sarah, you got Congress and everybody's fighting. Republicans are fighting with each other. Republicans are fighting with Democrats. Democrats are yelling at the Republicans. It doesn't seem to be. And we kind of just inch our way down the road. I'm not asking you to dive into politics, but how much as somebody that's in the financial markets are you watching all this political tomfoolery? I'm trying to be polite. Yeah, you know, I think we we want to see a working government because if we have a working government, it's a lot easier to tackle things like the rising cost of debt. And right now, you know, we're not seeing that. Um, you know, I think another piece of this is the the likelihood that we're going to be spending a lot more money that we don't exactly have, you know, with the situation in Israel, you know, and, and that's likely to be ongoing on top of Ukraine, on top of all these other things. And, you know, we're going into an election year. So that that gives some uncertainty too. I just think that there isn't one bad thing here, but there's very little good. Yeah, very little good. I think we'll I think we'll end it there. Sarah and Lindsay, thanks for pivoting. And by the way, thank you for not laughing hysterically when I said tomfoolery, because now I'm officially really old. Sarah, Lindsay, thank you very much. There's some shenanigans happening. All right. Up next, all or nothing, a huge sit down between President Biden and China's President Xi next week. Will it break the fever intentions? Plus, Pretty intriguing list of your five biggest insider stock buys of the week. It is your Friday exclusive, and we have it coming up. 
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. All right, time for yet another Last Call exclusive, your weekly top five insider buys. The five biggest insider buys of the week. Reminder, these are not stock buybacks. These are executives buying their own stock with their own money and is always brought to us by our friends at Verity Data. All right, let's go. Number five, the CEO buying 970000 worth of Lumen Technology, CEO's first insider buy since joining the company last year. Two other insider buys as well. Number four, the CEO of Air Products and Chemicals, snapping up $2.5 million worth of APD, his first buy, by the way, in four and a half years. And Verity notes the CEO's got a strong insider buying track record. In other words, he times it well. Number three, a $2.9 million buy by blood clot removal device company Inari Medical by their chairman. It's a reversal for him. He was a seller of Inari last year which was a good call. The stock down 30% over 12 months. Now to the top two. Coming in at number two, a board member at Remitly Global buying $5.8 million worth of that. Remitly is a Seattle-based sort of money-sending service. And the biggest insider buy of the week should be a familiar name if you've been following us for a while. It is a combined $5.9 million buy at Sarepta Therapeutics by two insiders, a CEO and a board member. This is the CEO's seventh different insider buy. And since we track every single one of these stocks, we can tell you this is the fifth time Sarepta has been on this list, which is tied for the most appearances by any company in the two and a half or so years we've been doing it with energy transfer partners. Sarepta, definitely a name to watch. Those are all your insider buys. Lumen Tech, Air Products and Chemicals, Inari Medical, Remitly Global, Sarepta, some new names there. We'll see you for it. Next, well, somebody actually won't because I won't be here. All right. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. President Biden is gearing up for a high-pressure visit next week with China President Xi Jinping. Eamon Chavers joining us now. Eamon, I would imagine there is a lot at stake with this meeting. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. It's going to be a major global diplomatic set piece in San Francisco next week as President Joe Biden meets with Chinese leader Xi Jinping during the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. The two men haven't seen each other in person for a year since their largely successful session in Bali toward the end of 2022. That meeting was seen as a success at the time, but it was followed by a year of increasing tensions with flashpoints from the Chinese spy balloon over the United States to potentially dangerous close encounters between Chinese and American military forces. Today, we saw Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen laying some of the economic groundwork for next week as she wrapped up two days of meetings with her counterpart, Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng. 
Yellen offered some calming language about her meeting, but she also told reporters that she discussed one of the flashpoints expected to come up next week, Chinese economic support for Russia's military. She said some companies are sending materials to the Russians. We do see evidence that there are Chinese firms, and I'm certainly not saying with the knowledge of the Chinese government, but some Chinese private firms that may be aiding in the flow of this um, equipment and material to Russia. Yellen said the U.S. is prepared to extend sanctions to those firms, but would like to see the Chinese government crack down on them independently. Now, Brian, I'm heading out to San Francisco to cover all of this next week. One thing I'm going to be looking for is the tone in the room at a big dinner that Xi Jinping is going to be hosting with top American CEOs. How close will those CEOs want to get with Xi Jinping and what kind of tone will they project? It's going to be a lot at stake here next week. Back over to you. Yeah, and you've got this credit rating outlook downgrade kind of aiming at the same time. Again, not a downgrade, but the outlook was downgraded by Moody's. And I'm not trying to, you know, this obviously they're, they're sort of unrelated, but at the same time, the U.S. is in sort of a semi-serious fiscal predicament. I would imagine that could embolden yeah. Xi. Absolutely. I mean, look, both of these countries are keeping a very close eye on each other's economy. The U.S. is analyzing the Chinese economy. You heard Janet Yellen talking about that today, saying that they got some insight into what's going on in the Chinese economy from her Chinese counterparts, saying that the Chinese believe they have the real estate uh, worries in China under control. She said well, time will have to tell on that. But the Chinese doing very much the same thing, analyzing what's going on here. Uh, and of course, that Moody's downgrade tonight, uh, you know, will be on their radar going into next week. I should say, Brian, we saw a statement almost immediately after that Moody's move uh, in the 5 p.m. hour from the White House. White House uh, putting a lot of blame for that on Republicans, of course, as you can imagine that they would, saying that the uh, drama around the speakership, pulling down the existing speaker, not being able to find a replacement speaker, all that uh, Republican dysfunction, as the White House put it, uh, sort of adding to the drama here that forced Moody's to make that move tonight. The Chinese are going to be watching all of that, as you say, Brian. Yeah, but, you know, that's politicking, and I get it. You always blame the other side because yep. who blames themselves? But you've got a deficit that's going up. Not de We keep hearing that the deficit is going. Yep. I cut the deficit. There's no deficit being cut. That, that was a COVID spending automatic rollover. The deficit is going up. Anyway, back back to China. Is Are there any real yep. expectations? Like, if there was one thing that we, as America could get out of this meeting or, or get toward at this meeting? Is there one thing or two things that are really sticking out, Eamon? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple, but look, overall, the White House is really tamping down expectations on this summit. The relations between the United States and China are as bad as they've been in a very long time. This is designed to sort of put a floor on that relationship so it doesn't get any worse. So, you know, basically a successful meeting will be, you know, smiles, pictures, handshakes, uh, no insults hurled, and everybody goes home. But there are a couple of things that they might take away from this. One is uh, renewing the military-to-military -military communications channels that were shut down back in 2022. That might help 
help just sort of head off any you know horrendous mistake uh, when we see some of these Chinese fighter jets getting close to American spy planes, Chinese naval operators maneuvering in front of uh, U.S. ships. Those instances uh, can be sort of de-escalated if they have that direct military-to-military -military communications channel. That's one that people are looking for. And then there's some expectation there might be some language around yep. AI, some language around climate change, but no major expectations for breakthroughs on either front. Yeah, wouldn't want to get in the way of China building all those coal plants. Eamon Javers, safe travels, by the way. I know they're cleaning up the city aggressively ahead Thanks. of that meeting. Eamon, thank you. All right, still ahead, how Elon Musk's X may have found its big moneymaker. Plus, America's top places to retire with some new survey results. And I'm promising you, these are not the places that you might be thinking. Stick around. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Elon Musk's highly controversial call to make users pay for their blue checkmark appears to be paying off, at least in some ways. According to the New York Post, premium subscriptions and data licensing revenue now account for nearly a quarter of X sales. Joining us tonight with more on Elon's growing empire is New York Post business reporter Lydia Moynihan. Lydia, good to have you on. It's hard to figure out where X is because sometimes I read that they're almost doomed and it's they're dying and it's dead. And then other times I read stuff like this where data licensing revenue is going up. Do we know really where we stand with X? Trying to solve for X. Uh, it's it's a big question, obviously. Yeah. You're bringing well, algebra into a Twitter segment. I love it. I, I try. I try. I mean, there's just endless options with the letter X. Um, look, you know. We've been hearing a lot about advertisers fleeing. It's, it seems like that revenue, those advertisers have dropped precipitously year over year. But a lot of people at the company are saying, look, we don't necessarily need to crack the content moderation uh, game. We don't necessarily need to rely on advertisers as much as we used to or as much going forward. And they point to the fact that they have really tried to beef up their data licensing agreements and their subscriptions that now make up, as you mentioned, 25% of their revenue. Just about a year ago, it made up 10%. Now, of course, a lot of skeptics say, well, overall, the revenue doesn't seem to be great. Of course, when Elon bought Twitter, it was $44 billion. It's now valued closer to $19 billion. But people at the company are optimistic. They say, look, we're in it for the long game. And the fact that just a year into it, we seem to be able to renegotiate all these data licenses with Google, get more money from that. We are seeing a lot of people signing up for these subscriptions. They think that that represents a viable path to becoming much more profitable. And I'll also note, even just in the last week, we uh, found out about Grok, the newest or soon to be newest addition to X, um, which is their new AI chatbot. 
And if you want access to that, you're going to pay not the eight bucks that most people have been paying to get that blue check mark. You're going to be paying $17. So the plan is they're going to keep unveiling all of these new bells and whistles, uh, charging for that. And, and the hope is that it's going to pay off. Yeah. And I wonder, and we got to speculate, Lydia, because, you know, I maybe someday I'll meet Musk and I'll ask him this if he's watching the show. Hi, Elon. You're welcome anytime. Uh, is Call in. Yeah, call in. It's a, it's a, we can make it a call-in show. Um, does he? I wonder if he, if he doesn't mind if Twitter gets or X gets smaller, if it gets better in terms of more real, meaning by charging, you kill the bots, right? Because bots don't pay. So by, by even charging a little bit, you get rid of all the fake users that, that gum it up, and maybe it becomes smaller but more real. I don't know. That's actually, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, look, I think at this point, going from 19 billion anywhere up would be good. He wants this to be a more sustainable kind of operation. You're right, even if it's smaller. Um, obviously, there's a lot fewer people working at Twitter, uh, 80% less than there were when he bought it. Um, but yeah, I think if you can if you can make it smaller and make it profitable and make sure that people using the service are actually paying for it, that's not a bad business. No. Make it smaller, clean it up, make it better, get the bots away and have it. If you want to be on X, be on X. If you don't want to be on X, don't be on X. And and we'll see, but you're going to pay. Cool story. Lydia Moynihan, as we know, X also marks the spot. Thank you. Oh, but um, uh, that was a good one. Yeah, it's, what, Mitch, it's I feel Mitch like Hedberg. you have some more of those my, up your Mitch, sleeve, Brian. Mitch, Mitch, Mitch Hedberg, right? It's not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry. All right, coming up. Take a wild guess at what that Picasso on your screen, way to the left, it's that, there you go. Femme à la montre. What did that, not that one, what did it sell for? Well, it's a lot, we're gonna tell you. And if you think investing in art like that is out of your reach, you might be wrong. We'll tell you why, next. All right, welcome back. If you have not been paying attention to the rarefied world of art, listen up. Because three were three major works sold at auction this week, a Rocha, a Mitchell, and a Picasso. And they went for a combined $270 million. That is a lot of money. But according to your next guest, post-war and contemporary art has actually outperformed pretty much every other asset class. Real estate, bonds, gold, S&P, whatever. But if you don't have a zillion dollars to throw around at paintings, how exactly do you get into this super exclusive market? Simple. You buy shares in some amazing works of art, which is exactly what Masterworks does. And CEO Scott Lynn joining us now. Scott, welcome. Um, so Femme à la Montre, which uh, the Picasso painting, it sold for $139 million. It was bought by a New York art patron, I think, in 1968 or 69. Do we know what she paid for it? Because I saw the de Kooning that sold for $300 million was sold for $4,000 in 1955. That's a hell of, that is a hell of a return. It's, yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question. So there's no, no, there's no public data of this, but it's rumored that, that uh, the purchase price was around a million dollars. So we, we expected this painting this week to sell for $120 million. It wound up selling for $140 million, which is the second most expensive painting ever uh, by Picasso, which... I think it was surprising to everyone. It was really, really sort of a testament to to the art market right now, despite uh, the macro economy. 
Um, but yeah, really, really incredible. So I just did while you were talking the BLS Bureau of Labor Statistics inflation calculator. I put in a million dollars in 1968 <laughs> and a million dollars back then would be worth about nine million now. But guess what? The painting went for that plus another hundred and thirty million dollars. <laughs> so we know it's red hot. Right. But is it red hot only, Scott, amidst the the the, the Picassos, the de Kooning's? Or are there other artists that are a little more approachable and maybe still some value there? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think I think when you look at the macro dynamic right now, what we're seeing in the art market is paintings priced less than five hundred thousand um, dollars, which which is, is sort of a emerging mid career type artist in today's market. That tends to be soft softening. So we we have seen prices in that in those segments go down. But in blue chip segments, like like the artist you mentioned, um, Picasso, obviously everyone knows Ed Ruscha. Uh, that was the second most expensive painting to ever sell by him. It's a text painting with the the word "boss" on it. Uh, the other painting that was very similar to that mm-hmm. said "Annie" and sold to Jeff Bezos for I think uh, fifty five million dollars. So you know, a lot of these paintings are selling for a lot of money. We saw fifteen artists set price records so far this week yeah. on roughly two billion dollars in art sold. Um, pretty incredible. And we, you know, ourselves and our research team going into this week with the over overlying macro dynamic, frankly, didn't didn't know what to expect. So I think I think now that we're winding down the week, we feel we feel pretty good about that. how do you just so quickly? How do you decide what to buy? And then how do you decide how many shares to to issue in, in each work? Yeah, so we we have a research team. We have 220 people in New York City that, that really operate almost as an asset manager. So they're they're looking at different data in the art market, different data on different artists, which artists are accelerating most quickly, uh, which artists we think effectively have the best risk-adjusted returns. And then once we decide that, we go out and we source paintings in that artist market. We buy the individual work of art. And then very similar to a company going public, we file the painting with the SEC as a public offering, and we sell shares in the work of art. So investors can can own one ten-thousandth of a Picasso or one mm-hmm. one-hundred-thousandth Picasso um, for the first time. Very cool stuff. Uh, enables us to to maybe feel just a sniff, a little corner of that amazingly <laughs> rarefied world. Scott, thank you. Have a great time and a good weekend. Thanks for having me on. All right. You're very welcome. Time now for Quicker Than the Ticker. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Happy birthday, Microsoft Windows. The software just turned 40 years old, launched here in New York City cost 99 bucks. The new stealth bomber taking flight, a B-21 Raider, flew in California for the first time today. It's made by Northrop Grumman and shaped like a flying wing. Each bomber costs around $750 million. Can't stop, won't stop, Taylor Swift. She just broke yet another record, the first person to be nominated in the Grammy's Song of the Year, seven times. In other entertainment news, Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk will come to the silver screen. Production company A24 has optioned the book that was confirmed by Variety. The question is, who will play Elon Musk? The F1 Grand Prix in Las Vegas just debuted the racetrack design, and it is cool. It is also adorned with playing card symbols, hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs. Obviously a nod to Vegas. All right. And by the way, I keep hearing a lot of people, pretty high levels, call this the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix. No, it's not. Formula One had two races in Vegas, 1981 and 1982. The first race was won by Aussie Allen. 
Jones. Not the first. All right. Much more Last Call right after this. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Just by the way, folks, we are trying to get SAG after President Fran Drescher. She just negotiated with Duncan Crabtree Island what looks to be a very good deal. She's scheduled to join us. The press conference running a bit late, so we're hoping to get Fran Drescher on to talk more about the deal. Excuse me, I know we're running out of time, but again, waiting on Fran. In the meantime, let's go to our Fun Friday segment, Can I Beat the Books? I'm trying to outsmart Vegas with three NFL picks against the spread to see not to promote it, but to see if it's possible to beat the books two years in a row. Now, I had a good week last week. Bears and Vikings both covered. Texans pick just destroyed me. Houston failed to cover by a point because their kicker got hurt, so I lost the three-way parlay. But the two wins mean that I'm 14, 12, and 1 on the season. Let's see if I can add a little more wins to the board. And joining us again is FanDuel extraordinaire Lisa Kearney. She will like or dislike my picks, add her touch, add her color, and offer up her valuable insight. Lisa, welcome back. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Happy Friday. Let's do this. Let's, let's do this, okay? And I love it when you don't like my picks, and I learned that you don't like my first pick, and that is the Jacksonville Jaguars plus three at home against the 49ers. Jags have a better record. They've won four in a row, three by double digits. They're getting a majority of the money. What is your beef? With my Jaguars pick. I got to tell you, you're coming hot out of the gate here, Soli, because this is arguably the best game of the day. Both teams coming off the bye, but I dislike your pick here. The Niners have lost three straight. But listen, they're averaging more than 27 points per game, nearly 380 yards of total offense, both of which are fourth most in the NFL. And now they get Debo Samuel back, likely have Trent Williams back as well. And let me also just share with you that this is the first look we get of Nick Bosa and Chase Young in that pass rush combo, which I think is going to really create a big problem and a big challenge there for Trevor Lawrence, who, by the way, is on track to be sacked a career high 40 times. This is such a good defense, fourth best, holding opponents to less than 18 points per game. Huge opportunity for the Niners to go on the road and cover. I think they do that. You're making me question my own pick. I know, listen, Chase Young is a stud, but at the same time, but at the same time, he's new. You're right. If they can get to Lawrence, my bet is toast. The Jaguars are toast. They don't have to win. They're getting three at home. So I also have a chance for a tie, which, you know, stinks, but it's not a loss. All right. Pick number two, Baltimore Ravens minus six and a half, giving six at home against the Browns. The Ravens, I'm sorry, they're the best team in football. Browns are backsliding. It opened at six, would have preferred that. I'll take the six and a half, I guess. Ravens, five of the last six wins. Most are blowouts or close to it. And Lisa, the Browns lost to the Ravens in Cleveland 28 to three in week four. Yeah, it was a different quarterback situation, though. Listen, we're looking at two of the top defenses in the league, and I really like your pick here, Sully. The Ravens have a plus 115 point differential on the season. They're playing at absolutely, I mean, that's 35 points more than the second ranked team. They are absolutely crushing teams when it comes to that point differential. And also they're incredibly well-rounded top six offensively and defensively. They lead the league with 35 sacks. They're also holding opponents to less than 14 points per game. Mm -hmm. It's best in the NFL. So then everybody's going to say, yeah, but the Browns defense is really, really good. Yes, they are. They are top rated. 
But Lamar Jackson right now is the most accurate passer solely in the NFL. 71.5% rate. Yep. Oh, and also he can run. I think the Ravens are going to go ahead and just lay the points at home and you're going to be okay. Pretty much the best offense, one of the best defenses, best kicker. They're at home against the team that used to be them. (laughs) The Ravens, you know, so uh, I don't know. I don't understand this line, but maybe maybe that's the point. All right. Final pick, I was going to go with the Lions, getting two and a half at home against the Saints, which I still like, but, and I can't believe I'm doing this uh, because I don't like the team at all, but I'm going to go with the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, now it's 17 and a half. I thought it was 17. Cowboys are 17 and a half point favorites against the Giants in Dallas. I mean, it's a massive line. It makes me nervous, but honestly, I have no rationale other than Dallas is great. The Giants are terrible. I could honestly see this game being like 40 to three. <laughs> well, last time we saw the two teams play, it was 40 nothing. Uh, let me just share with you 40 nothing, including seven sacks on Daniel Jones. I like your pick here, Soli. I like it a lot. L- 17 and a half, 18 and a half, 20, whatever you want, throw it down. I think you're going to be okay here. Listen, seven sacks for Daniel Jones. You, we know that he's gone. He's out with that torn ACL. They've got an undrafted third string rookie quarterback taking over there in Tommy DeVito. He had a 3.6 passer rating on the road at the Raiders in that loss last week. So here we are with this team and this undrafted drafted rookie quarterback on the road at AT AT&T stadium, which by the way, I don't know if you know this Sully, the Cowboys are three and O at home with a margin of victory of 26 points. The Giants average 11.2 points per game all season long. That's not only worse, but that is five worse points per game than the second worst team in the league. It's a disaster in New York. That trend is going to continue in this divisional game there in Dallas. Lay lay all the points. Dump buckets of points on this game. Uh, Yeah, Cowboys are going to crush them. Uh, The line just, I think, there to lure people in that see the big number and they they go the other side. So so we got Cowboys minus 17 you like, Ravens minus six and a half you like, and you, you don't like the Jags plus three. Lisa Kearney, thank you so much and good luck this weekend. Thank you, you too, and we will talk soon. All right, all right, she can go 3-0 and and I'll go 2-1. and All right, coming up, Hollywood Forever, change. SAG after President Fran Drescher just wrapping up a big press conference on the union's historic deal, and she will join us next. All right, welcome back. Another big win for workers. This time, it is 160,000 media professionals, including actors, broadcasters, recording artists, and more, reaching a big deal. 86% of the SAG-AFTRA National Board just approved the deal. Now it officially goes to the members for ratification. The agreement the union struck with Hollywood Studios and its producers is valued at about a billion dollars. And it contains provisions for minimum pay. Residual payments for shows streamed online, increases to health and pension plans, and guidelines for artificial intelligence. SAG after President Fran Drescher just wrapped up a press conference sharing details with the union members. She joins us now along with the Screen Actors Guild Chief Negotiator, Duncan Crabtree Ireland. And of course, a disclosure, our parent company, NBC Universal, is a member of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which was on the other side of the table from SAG-AFTRA. So, uh, Fran and Duncan, 
Thank you both very much. Listen, we love to get this deal done. We want to get everybody back to work. 86 percent. What was the whole? It wasn't 100 percent. So what what were some of the last minute sticking points, Fran? Well, those are like two questions, because I think the last sticking points of the negotiation was the uh, fund that we needed for the new stream of revenue and also the last piece in place for AI. They finally absorbed the fact that those were going to be deal breakers. And if indeed they wanted to end the strike, they were going to have to yield to the deal. As far as the 86% goes, I think what you're referencing is what our national board vote was. And that is a whopping amount in favor of this contract. But people have their own, you know, little things that maybe weren't included or big things for them. And because of that, they were unwilling to support the uh, contract. And I urged everybody to vote their heart and no pressure with Russia. But this is only the (laughs) beginning, not the end. And we're already rolling up our sleeves with big plans for the next negotiation. Yes. I mean, this union is a democracy. And so it, it you know, th- th- there's not an expectation of unanimity at all times. Instead, there is a real commitment to talking through all the issues. And that's why that super, super majority was the result. Duncan, do you expect the union members to ratify this deal? I, I do. I mean, I, I don't want to prejudge the members' decision. We will be going out with member meetings, both virtually and in person, so that we can talk to them about all the aspects of the deal. But the fact is, this is a groundbreaking deal. It's a historic deal. It is more than all in terms of money, in terms of compensation. It's gains that are more than the last three negotiations combined. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, it has protections against the abuse of uh, use of AI to really harm our members' ability to control their own use of their image and likeness. So I think that when we go talk to the membership at large about this, they're going to find a lot in this agreement to like, and I do expect it to be uh, to be ratified. And, you know, go, we'll go into the weeds a little bit here, Fran, and if I get something wrong, please forgive me because this issue of AI is fairly complicated. You've got actors and actresses who are alive. You've obviously got actors and actresses who are dead, and you can sort of bring them back to life with AI. There's also this idea of body scanning, as I understand it, as well as facial scanning. And they're very different things. And again, please correct me if I'm wrong. So you got some things on AI. You've already been talking just now about the next contract. What more would you want from the AI side as a protection? Okay, well, first thing is we now call all of us actors. (laughs) We don't qualify them by gender anymore. And also, I think that when we talk about emotion capture or facial capture, that is going to be something that's very important to include in the language in the next go round. But the big thing was that for the first time in 20 years, we got performance capture. So now that we've got it on the paper, Again, a blank page that ended up having language in it for a community that had never been addressed. And next, we will include those performers that also do facial and motion. What, what Duncan, what does that mean? What's the difference between the performance capture and the facial capture? Like, can you, can you put it in a way that, you know, obviously for an old man like me, that I could even understand. Like, what, what, how does it impact the difference in how AI might work? 
Sure. So, there, so there's a whole genre of work called performance capture work, which is not only tied to AI. This is the kind of work that people have seen in movies like uh, Avatar, where you have maybe seen videos of performers with dots all over their body or their face. Um, that technology evolves, but that technology has, you know, has has traditionally been covered under our contracts, and that coverage is now confirmed in this contract for the first time. But when we talk about AI, we're talking about something even beyond that, because we're talking about, for example, the ability of generative AI systems to actually create a synthetic fake performer that's not any real person that exists in the world. It's made up of pieces of other people, et cetera. So we have uh, now got in this contract protections against the use of, uh, for example, facial features of some of our members without their consent. We have that protection now in this contract. We have a protection okay. that makes sure that we're notified when it happens and that there's payment that can be negotiated. Things like that that are really important. And those can be expanded on in further rounds of bargaining. But really, we have the guardrails in this contract on AI that we've needed and we've been fighting for since day one of this negotiation. And, and Fran, obviously, you know, you're, you're on CNBC. So we're, we're sort of the stock, the quote, I'm doing air quotes, the stock market channel. And we're looking at many of these stocks now, Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount. I mean, they're getting walloped. The whole business model, <laughs> the cable bundle, and I'm saying this with a tear in my eye, the cable bundle, Fran, is sort of going away. And that was kind of, you know, rich uncle cable was always there. And now we're all trying to figure out how to make money at this job. How do you see this deal in the framework of what is just the most rapid change in video media probably ever? Well, I would say for starters, I think that um, the entertainment industry is a collaborative art form, and that's where it should remain. It should not be so tied at the hip with shareholders. It's, you know, if you want to invest in a company, invest in a company. But the uh, leadership of that company should not be so tied with the success of the stock. It should be tied to the creative people that make this industry and have done so for 100 years or more. And so it is uh, that would be the thing that mm -hmm. I would recommend the biggest uh, paradigm shift to be. Let's start focusing on the writers, the performers, the directors. Let's focus on making good entertainment that people yes. want to watch. And Please. that would be my advice. Please. It's you know, great advice. Duncan, unfortunately, the show's got eight seconds left. We're going to leave it there. Congratulations. Great, great work over four months. Look forward to being signed. Thank you both very much, folks. Thank you. Have a fantastic weekend. We'll see you Monday. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.